Genesis 32, and we'll begin our reading here at verse 9. Hear once again the word of our God. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And then if you would come down to the 24th verse. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Eniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. As far as the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. This evening we begin a, a short uh, series of sermons on a very simple theme, and that is the saint wrestling with his God. And of course, naturally, this is the text that we come to. The idea of wrestling with God is really derived primarily from the text before us tonight. But even as we take up this theme, I want to remind you that there is so much, even in that simple phrase, the saint wrestling with his God. And those ideas that are in view are primarily three. First of all, the idea is that there is a God who is real, is personal, and even calls his people to wrestle with him. Also, it presumes, of course, that there are saints in the earth. But thirdly, it also, in this text, sets before us even the way in which these saints are to wrestle with the Lord, what that entails, and how they're to prosecute it. And really, as we come to this short series of sermons from Genesis 32, really those three ideas will always be present. They're always in the text in one way or another, sometimes more explicit in one case than in another verse, but they're all present. And we need to keep that in mind before us as we come especially to our text tonight. Now, beloved, of course, when we look at this moment, this moment where Jacob wrestles with God, it's, it's a staggering moment in so many ways. 
because of course the Lord God is, re- is appearing in a miraculous, extraordinary way. And as you look throughout Scripture, of course, this is not the only time that the Lord will appear in a miraculous way. We often refer to his theophany. But this is the only time that God appears as one wrestling with his saints. It's a striking thing. And we'll see, God willing, in the weeks to come, uh, just how striking that is in the book of God. But because it is a theophany, it's important for us to remember, friend, that every time that God appears in these miraculous ways, he appears, of course, according to his own good pleasure. Whatever manner in which he appears, he does so not by constraint. He does so according to his own free disposition. And what's striking is, as you look at those moments when God appears, well, friend, he appears in different ways in different contexts. And really, as we look at these texts, the manner in which God appears is largely explained by the context itself. What do I mean by that? Well, friend, let me just give you a few examples, just briefly. Take God appearing to the likes of Joshua or Gideon. Does it surprise us that God comes to Joshua before he takes entrance into Canaan and before he even looks to Jericho? He appears to to Joshua as a soldier. To Gideon as a man unafraid of the Philistines standing while Gideon crouches. Is it surprising that God appears warlike to these men at such a time? Or, Or take Moses when God appears to him in the burning bush. You remember, Israel is described as being in the furnace of affliction and yet still preserved. Is it striking then that God appears to Moses in a bush that was burning but not consumed? You see, the context of these moments, of course, preach to us, explain to us why it is that God is taking the form that he is in these theophanies. And so when we come to Genesis 32, we need to keep that in mind, that the context is crucial for us to understand what goes before us, which is why our focus this evening is really not even on the theophany itself. It's on what comes before. It's what we have here in the ninth verse of Genesis 32. And as you look at Genesis 32, of course, the context is striking. It's obviously a watershed moment for the life of Jacob. Obviously, this is an incredible providence in many ways. This is, of course, a moment laden with meaning. Jacob has been 40 years in exile. 40 years in exile. 40 years since he's been on the southern side, as it were, of the river. Well, now he's returning. It's a striking thing. But what's also striking, of course, is the fact that he's facing a brother who wanted to hate him before and appears even 40 years after the fact, well, he appears to be still bent in a murderous rage against Jacob. But friends, as we look at Genesis 32, and, and we can't say too much about this this evening, it's important to keep in mind really how this crisis is presented to us. It is, of course, a moment that is significant for Jacob's life, but it's significant and really a crisis for a whole different reason, something even beyond Esau himself. As you look at Genesis 32, the text begins with Jacob making his descent. He comes with his family. He comes, of course, at God's command. And when he comes, 
When he makes his southward journey, he's met, you remember in verses 1 and 2, with the appearance of God's angels. Now, friend, I've just talked to you briefly about theophany, God appearing, and how that's laden with meaning, the way in which the Lord appears. Well, here you have God's angels appearing, and they appear as God's host. The army that does God's bidding. That's the first thing that Jacob encounters as he makes his southward journey. And of course, on the back of this, Jacob sends word to his brother. After just receiving this wonderful token of God's sovereignty, wonderful picture of God's preserving care for Jacob and his family, Jacob immediately sends word to his brother. And then when the messenger returns, all that returns, not a statement from Esau, just the very foreboding news that Esau comes with 400 men. What is the crisis of Genesis 32? And well, in many ways you could summarize it this way. You have God's extraordinary dealings with the patriarch seemingly contradicted by God's ordinary workings in providence. You have two providences that seem very much to be contrary one to the other. God saying, come south. And yet the same God who controls all things has, according to his decree, brought Esau and his 400 men to meet him. Seemingly, there's a conflict. Seemingly, there's a tension. And so, Jacob falls to prayer. He makes his preparations, verses 6 to 8. But then in verse 9, our text for this evening, Jacob comes to the throne of grace. A friend, as we look at this text, a couple of things I want to keep before us is, first of all, this is significantly the first time and the only time that we find Jacob engaged in prayer. This is the only time in the entire book of God where this patriarch is presented to us as a man suing for grace in prayer. But it's significant also because of the way in which he does so. Take the ninth verse. As Jacob prays, he addresses God thus, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Well, if you just look over to the page, just over, look over to the end of chapter 31, you'll find something very similar, but markedly different. Laban says in verse 53 of Genesis 31, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge betwixt us. Now, most commentators believe, ancient and modern, that Really, Laban is citing all of the pantheon, all of his false gods, and putting them beside Jehovah, as though Jehovah were simply one of that number. Oh, friend, beloved, as you look at this text, Jacob addresses God in a very different way. He has no regard for any, but for the God of Abraham and for the God of Isaac. Now, as you look at this text, too, it's striking, of course, because you find that not only does he address God as God of his fathers, but he addresses him as the Lord, that is Jehovah, which says to me, return unto thy country, and so forth. I want you to note, friend, he invokes the Lord, Jehovah, in this moment. You remember that name signifies God as God is self-sufficient. None, none support the being, the existence of our God. He is from eternity, 
ase, we would say theologically. But also he cites God in this case, citing this name, showing us that he is the God who is faithful in his covenant keeping. This is the covenant keeping God whom Jacob addresses. And of course, this is the God who has said unto him that the Lord would make covenant with him. As we look at this text, and first of all, we do recognize that this prayer comes really in response to an incredible crisis. It's a watershed moment, as we've already said. But what we can't miss is, if this is a watershed moment, and Jacob falls to prayer, really, for the first and the only time that we have recorded in Scripture, though the man was, as we'll see in a moment time, very much given to prayer, it is striking that Scripture presents this as Jacob's immediate response. He makes preparation and immediately falls to his knees. And beloved, as you look at the crisis and then this means, you see here what the Lord is setting before us with regard to the patriarch. Jacob thinks, really, this is sufficient to the task. This is a sufficient means even though the crisis is so heavy. Jacob is made, as it were, a man at his irreducible minimum. This crisis lays bare for us what Jacob thinks and to that which Jacob makes recourse in the greatest trial. And here we find the patriarch, stripped bare really of any other recourse, falling to the Lord and invoking him in this particular way. Now, beloved, as we look at Jacob, what we see here, of course, is an example. It's a vignette, a picture of the believer as he looks at conflicting, seemingly conflicting providences. We see a believer making access to God. The friend note, and we'll see this in just a few moments' time, Note how he makes his access to the Lord. It is by seeking grace from the God of covenant. To put it another way, what we see here is that the believer seeks grace through God's gracious covenant. I want us to think about that briefly this evening under three headings. First of all, see how the believer in this text ponders his membership in that covenant. Then, see how he reflects on the material of that covenant. And lastly, see the the way, the manner in which Jacob makes access to God through this covenant. So take, first of all, the membership. The membership that Jacob has in view. He says here, God of my father. God of my father Abraham. God of of my father Isaac. Now friend, of course what Jacob is saying is, I belong to that family to which the promise has been made. But as you look at this text, it is a bit striking, isn't it? Could not Esau pray the same? Could he not say that the God of Abraham, my father, and the God of Isaac, my father, or could Esau not claim that God is his own? The answer is strikingly no. Note what Jacob says in the very next line. The Lord 
which saidst unto me. You see, beloved, he's looking here not just at his family connections. He's looking at the covenant itself. Covenant made with Abraham, renewed with Isaac. But then Jacob is very quick to tell us that self-same covenant that was made specifically with him. This is something unique to Jacob. Something, by the way, Esau could not pray. And this is the way in which Jacob approaches the Lord. The covenant that God has made with him is the very basis then from which he will plead for mercy. Friend, I want you to note just for a moment, just for a moment, how striking that is. Jacob does not appeal to God as a God who is, in his mercy, very general, in his forbearance, very liberal. I mean, take Ahab just for example. Ahab received the general forbearance of God, the general mercy of God, their general goodness. He knew that much. The apostles will talk about the general goodness that even the pagans enjoyed. The Lysonians in Acts 14, they could even say, God did us good filling our hearts with food and gladness. Those pagans could claim some taste of God's goodness, temporal goodness to them. But when Jacob is put in this moment, God's general goodness, his general benevolence is not what Jacob is eyeing. Jacob is looking for specific grace. And he's looking for specific grace through a very specific covenant. A covenant, mind you, that he sees himself having a particular, a personal interest in. This is how Jacob deals with God. He's not looking for the mercy that would be shown to an Ahab, or the goodness that would be shown even to unbelieving pagans. He is looking for covenant mercy. Now, beloved, as you look at this, what you see here is Jacob is pleading not with God absolute, but God in covenant. And even more specifically, God in covenant with him. With him. Above to, to really see this in its fullness, I, I would say that we do need to have some kind of a digression here. It's necessary for us to see that this is Jacob's first, as it were, port of call. His first act as he goes to the Lord in the midst of this crisis. He cites God according to the covenant. He will plead with God through the covenant. And he sees himself as he pleads, as one with whom the covenant has indeed been made. Beloved, for believers, this is a wonderful picture because it shows us that saints really can only plead comfortably for mercy, as they have an assurance of some special interest in God's covenant. I want you to see this in a few ways. First of all, take just Jacob's life. Take the tokens that Jacob received of God's special mercy. Of course, there was special revelation. I read that to you from Genesis 25, 23. His godly mother, Rebekah, finds that her pregnancy is not very typical. 
And so what does she do? She doesn't seek the physicians or the astrologers. She goes to the Lord. She inquires of the Lord, which is, of course, a pious act, one we shouldn't overlook. And then, of course, the answer is returned. The Lord has chosen the younger, the younger to be greater than the, higher, than the older. Promise, of course, pertains then to the birthright. And in the promise and in providence of God, we see this fall upon Jacob himself. We see it, of course, in the text that we read, Genesis 25, but we also read of, of it whenever the Lord meets with Jacob at Bethel and says there, Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Now, friend, that is the covenant. God has promised through special revelation. Jacob is really one with whom God has entered into this bond. And so, friend, Jacob is not presuming. When he pleads for covenant mercy, he has it from God's own revelation that Jacob has a right and a title to that covenant grace. And friend, how presumptuous is it to claim covenant mercy when we don't have it? I mean, take just for a moment how the Lord looks at these kinds of things. Take what I quote to you often, Psalm fifty sixteen: What hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? You see how the Lord deals with those who presume to take this covenant upon themselves without having an interest in it themselves. Beloved, of course, that raises the question, how then can this be reflective of believers today? The objection could be, well, but none today, do we, have such special and particular revelation given to us that we belong to God's gracious covenant. Friend, I want you to notice, of course, that in this period in redemptive history, Jacob's tokens of his interest in this covenant are special, are particular to himself. But it's important for us to remember, beloved, that those believers today who have assurance have an assurance that is no less sure, even if their tokens are not as particular, extraordinary as Jacob's. Jacob has a sure interest in the covenant. And believers today who have an ordinary, and through ordinary means, are granted this assurance have an assurance that is no less sure. Our confession talks about it. Is It too is an infallible assurance. Jacob's was more particular, but no less sure than what believers can have today. And friend, take what we have here. Do we not have special revelation that the covenant mercies that Jacob was promised are also believers From the lips of Christ, I go to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. It is the voice of Christ who says these words to his disciples. Or take this from Hebrews 13. He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What's striking about that text is the apostles speaking to Christians generally, but the words that he's citing are given primarily to Joshua and primarily also to Jacob, again at Bethel. But he's saying, even though those things were given particularly to them, they belong generally to all of those people who belong to the Lord. Note the promise. 
I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Special revelation promising certainly that the people of God have covenant mercy. And take this, beloved. Take what we read from Hebrews 6. God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. The believer may be just as assured of his interest in Christ. May take just as much consolation from the covenant as Jacob does, even without the extraordinary revelation that Jacob received. And note, the apostle says just as much. When the believer is seeking grace and is able to do so with real boldness and freeness of access to that throne of grace, here the apostle describes it thus. In Christ we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. How is it that Jacob could proceed so so emphatically, so earnestly with God? Well, friend, he had faith in that covenant. He had a sure interest himself, and therefore he was able to be bold. Therefore he had free access. And the apostle says here, believers today may enjoy the self-same thing. Now, beloved, the application from this first point, that believers may only comfortably seek mercy from God's gracious covenant from an assurance of their interest in it, of course, makes us a people then who must seek this assurance. Assurance of faith is not of the essence of faith. There are many at various stages in their walk with the Lord who lack assurance, but who are no less God's children. And beloved, we do need to keep that in mind. But I would also remind you that it is a duty to seek this assurance. It is an obligation upon believers to seek it. I would just highlight that for some very, very, very quickly. I want you to note, first of all, we're to seek it as something that is possible. Possible for Jacob and just as possible for believers today, though through different means. This is what the apostle says, 1 John 5, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. The apostle calls us, make our calling and election sure. Beloved, an infallible assurance is offered to believers today, is given to believers today. That's what's held out to us in the word of God. And beloved, that assurance that believers may have by God's grace is no less sure than what Jacob leans upon in our text. They may have as sure a sense of their interest in God's gracious covenant as Jacob. Friend, I'll also remind you too that with this assurance comes something quite comforting to the believer. Take Romans 8. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. By seeking this assurance, beloved, you are seeking the Lord to apply to you the greatest inestimable comforts that one may know the sight of glory. And friend, we must seek those kinds of things, must we not? To do so is to say we desire not the comforts that the world may offer. We desire only those things which God himself can supply. To seek this comfort is to say I want nothing of the world. Just that consolation that comes from on high. 
But thirdly, and this is so crucial, beloved, this kind of assurance is vivifying. It is a quickening thing. We think of assurance too often, I think. This idea that we can know we have an interest in the covenant, as Jacob himself knows, as though it's merely to help us to die comfortably. But friend, the scriptures hold out to us something so much more profound. This assurance that we are to seek, this assurance that we are to seek in earnest, well, beloved, it has a quickening aspect to it. The apostle puts it this way, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Note what he says, if you have these promises, if you are really assured of your interest in these things, for what's the exhortation? Well, to have these promises in such an intimate way must lead, as he puts it here, to cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And now we will be looking at that, at that third aspect uh, further in our time in this, this chapter of God's word. But I just note it now. Jacob was able to wrestle with the Lord because first and foremost, he was a man who was really assured of his interest in the Lord. Many Christians limp before they wrestle. Many Christians, because they lack this assurance and are not diligent in seeking it, often go to the throne of grace and find no comfort, no blessing left, because they've not first sought this. They've not sought in earnest that thing which Jacob leans upon in this crisis. Now, as I said, that is our first digression. The next two points are far briefer. Beloved, When you look at what Jacob is doing, you see a man who is assured of his interest in a covenant. I said that already, but note, beloved, what covenant he has in view. It is that which was made with my father Abraham, with my father Isaac, that was made with himself. And it's entirely right for us to ask the question, well, what was in that covenant? What was in that covenant really? And friend, I think that this uh, this is something of a second digression, but it's a crucial one. I think often when we come to a text like this, we simply read these things with, without really thinking deeply about what really is in view. Uh, friend, most of what we say about the Old Testament largely comes out of a vacuum of knowledge. And so it's important for us to look at this. What, what is the patriarch drawing upon in this text? I think most would say at first brush, well, well isn't he, is he not just drawing upon that covenant that has promised his, himself land and posterity. That's the covenant that he's drawing down on, is it not? That's what was promised primarily in the covenant. Friend, I want you to notice just two things. First of all, Abraham dies when Jacob is 15 years old. Abraham dies when Jacob is 15. And what did Jacob see? Oh, beloved, what Jacob saw both in Abraham and later in his father Isaac, was that they themselves, as the writer of the Hebrews put it, did not obtain the promise. How much of that promised land did Abraham and Jacob get? How much did Isaac get himself in their lifetime? Just enough to bury their dead. Nothing more. Jacob saw that with regard to Abraham. He would witness that with regard to his own father. 
Jacob himself would have the same experience. If these men were only seeking land, a beloved, they were men who are to be pitied, not to be seen as privileged men. Now, if that was not principle in the covenant, what was? Direct your attention to what you have in Genesis 15. The Lord says, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. O beloved, take what you have in Hebrews 11. He sojourned, that's Abraham, in the land of promise, as in, a strange, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. As far as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are concerned, beloved, the promised land and the great posterity that was given to them was not fundamentally that which they aimed at. It was God himself. Those, those blessed things, those temporal blessings that they might look for, were merely things that flowed from this greater principle. They would have God as their God. Oh, beloved, this is the covenant. This is the covenant that Jacob draws down on. And so when Abraham believes, we're told here he believed in the Lord and he counted it for him for righteousness. He was not trusting only in a covenant that may give him land and children. A covenant that was so much more. Reconciliation with Almighty God. Even even these words. The Lord himself would be his exceeding great reward. Beloved, that was the covenant. And that's the covenant that Jacob draws down on. A covenant that not only promises him Canaan, but promises that this God would be his God. And all that that entailed for time and for eternity. Friend, when you reflect on that, you see here just how clear, how clearly applicable the apostles' words are. Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jacob says in this moment of crisis, there is a covenant that God has made with me, whereby this God is made my God. In all things he is my God. And if that's the case, may I not expect some temporal good from his hand. Does that not have implications for time and for eternity? The Apostles' dialect is only slightly different. For those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ are not even the least mercies. Those things that a believer may look to to receive from his heavenly Father and for Christ's sake. A friend, is a striking thing when you look at this text. Could it not be the case that the Lord would raise up if all of his wives were slain, his children slain that he already had? Could the Lord not also raise up a new generation of families? Yes, Jacob was likely about 86 years old at the time. But could not the Lord who is omnipotent, infinite in his power, could he not raise up new? Certainly could, and he would fulfill them the promise that he had made, that his posterity would be continued. But yet, Jacob goes to this covenant 
and he sues for mercy that these ones specifically may be spared. The analogy, friend, is so very basic. If some benefactor gave you 100,000 pounds, would you have any reason to doubt either their love or their sufficiency to give you a pound more? If Jacob has been given God himself as his exceeding great reward, how could Jacob doubt either God's sufficiency or his love to ask for mercy? Uh, friend, that's the, very, that's the very idea that behind Romans 8.32. He that spared not his own son, one of infinite value, one of infinite glory, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All things necessary for this life, to persevere in grace in this life. All things to prepare us for the time to come that is for our real good. Beloved, that too is part of the covenant, and it's that covenant that Jacob invokes in our text. But thirdly and finally, we come to the method or the manner in which these things are sought. I want you to notice, as I said before, that this is, of course, a prayer. It's the first and the only prayer that Jacob makes in the scriptures that's recorded. But if it's the case that Jacob here is a man who has God as his God, if it's the case that Jacob seeks these things by faith, allow me to remind you, beloved, that that means then that Jacob is a man who is regenerate. He's a man possessed of saving faith. The New Testament writers are very clear on that. And I think perhaps this is a right opportunity to rethink the man. As you see this man falling into prayer, as you see this man wrestling with his God, uh, friend, what should we make of him? I think in many ways, through the running centuries, we've become very, very loose in our dealings with men and women in the scriptures. Um, and friend, I think J Jacob is a very good example of that. Uh, we've vilified a man whom the apostles never did. Certainly a man had failings, but he certainly is not the anti-hero uh, that many would make him out to be today. I want you to notice how he's described for us in Scripture. Take, take the promise uh, that was given to Rebekah. When you look at Jacob, and you look at the covenant that's in view here, Rebekah is promised that the promise itself will come still to a point of discrimination. You remember, God had promised that Isaac and not Ishmael before would be of the elect line. A friend, this is entirely unique, of course, to that particular period in redemptive history. But remember that much. When God came to Isaac and not to Ishmael, he was saying he would be Isaac's God, not Ishmael's. But then when Rebekah finds out that God will do that again with the twins in her womb, friend, think about how striking that is. One will be reprobate, the other elect. I don't think we think about Scripture as closely as we should when we come to a text like that. Rebecca is being told very pointedly that discrimination will now come even to these twins. And certainly that's what the Apostle says in Romans 9. It's exactly what takes place. And then we find that Jacob, Jacob is a man 
who is earnest to have some interest in that covenant. What do we make of that? Well, friend, I think the description that we have in verse 27 of Genesis 23 explains for us what we have. We're told there that Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. The word plain there, in the original, means perfect. Genesis 6, 9, that's the very word used to describe Noah. It means perfect also in Job's case, Job 1, verse 1, and also verse 8. In the Song of Solomon, it's translated undefiled. In Ezekiel 15, 5, it's translated whole, as in like a healthy vine, a whole vine. Really, the idea behind verse 27 is that Jacob was a plain-hearted man. He was a sincere man. And so our forebears translated thus. Uh, Ainsworth puts it this way. Jacob was a religious, honest, plain, and simple disposition without guile or wickedness. The Dutch annotations put it this way. Jacob became an upright man. Matthew Pohl, he was a sincere, honest, plain-hearted man. Take Esau once again. In comparison, we're told that he was cunning. He was a learned, expert hunter. We assume, well, that just means that he was a man given to outdoors. Friend, remember what takes place just 40 years later. He takes to himself Hittite wives. He's a man not only who's roaming the fields, but he's roaming the world. He's quite, quite happy, quite happy to find unbelievers and take companionship with them. But what about Jacob? Jacob, we're told that he was a man who dwelt... Intense. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we're told that Jacob made his home with Abraham and Isaac. He dwelt in one tent with Abraham and Isaac. What do we make of that? Well, friend, I think that the older writers are right to see here that there you have Jacob preferring the company of the covenant people of God over the world. Esau would quite willing to bring Hittites into his tent. Jacob dare not leave the covenant people of God. And so when you come to that birthright selling, that is often, I think, misinterpreted by so many, you'll see here not so much Jacob's cunning, but Esau's lack of care. Is it, it's nothing to Esau, nothing to Esau that God might be his God, his exceeding great reward, but to Jacob it's everything. Jacob craves this, longs for this, dwells only among those who have this as their inheritance and portion. So what do we find? Well, friend, as you look at this text, you have a man then who longs for these things, longs to have God as his God. And what does this make him do? Well, friend, that longing brings him in this moment of crisis to prayer. It's a striking thing. The man who so longed for these covenant blessings, even after he has received them, he prays them down, pleads with God to apply them to himself. It was not just the promise that Jacob looked for, but even, friend, in this moment, you find here Jacob was looking to the God of the promise. 
pleading with him in all, in all things. Now, mindful of the time, for now I would remind you that here you have the man stripped bare. Here you have a man in a great crisis where God in his providence seems to be saying something other than what he has said in his promises. The response is the man falls to his knees and he pleads with his God. Jacob does not begin to wrestle with the Lord at verse 24. He begins to wrestle in verse 9. A friend, as you look at this text, you find that Jacob believes that the covenant that he, is, that he has with the Lord, that has God as his exceeding great reward, is a covenant that has temporal implications. No, he's not a prosperity believer. He knows that what he desires, the Lord's will may preclude from him. But he does believe this much. God will work all things out for his good, his real good, and for God's glory. The believer today has precisely the same promise. To have an interest in this covenant is to have this God as your God for present help, present mercy, and present grace. Not only for eternal bliss. Jacob takes that fact, makes it the impetus for his prayer. And certainly beloved believers can do the same today. But I'll remind you that there is an exhortation to this. Friend, if, if Jacob stands before us as a man of faith and he begins here, he begins with the idea that he is a member of God, a, member, a, a, a person of interest in the covenant of God. Friend, how necessary is it for us ourselves to make our calling and election sure? Uh, friend, if this is where Jacob begins, uh, most Christian wrestling uh, fails because we don't begin here as well. We must make our calling and election sure. We must be a people, must be a people who seek assurance if we do profess faith in Christ. It's so crucial. As I said to you already, friend, so many fail to wrestle with the Lord comfortably with the kind of ease that they're commanded to have because they don't start here. This is where we must begin, and we must begin daily. And secondly, beloved, as you look at this text, you find a man who is conscious of the covenant of which he has an interest, or in which he has an interest. He's perused the covenant. He's thought upon it, meditated upon it, and seen its implications. Beloved, you and I need to be doing the same. Would we think the investor was a, a poor investor, if he didn't look over that which he was investing in, carefully perusing all of its contents, carefully seeing if, if the thing is sound, the believer needs to be doing the same. Not in doubt of God, but because the Lord has promised all of these things. And it's the believer's interest. It should be his daily occupation to see what's in it. Beloved, if you have an interest in this covenant, it is only showing your dependence upon the Lord, your great faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to peruse its details. See what it has for you today, what it promises for you tomorrow. Make that your great meditation. And then, beloved, you'll find that Jacob, Jacob stands as a real example, even for the present. So may the Lord lead us in all of these ways.
Amen. Amen. We'll close this evening by turning to prayer. Um, So let's stand to come together to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Our blessed and our eternal God, we come before you, Father, a people who have so many precious promises held out to us in the word. And yet, Lord, we confess that we are a people who are so slow to reflect, so slow to believe that which has been revealed, a people who would rather distract themselves than to seek a sound and steady assurance that we ourselves have an interest in these things. We are a people who are quick to engage in those sins that would harm our assurance, divest us of it. We're a people who are quick to look to other comforts than to seek this. And so, Father, we ask that we would become a people then more who would first seek to make our calling and election sure, who would be a people who would study much and deeply this covenant of grace that is held out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you make this our waking and our closing thought each day? Would you cause us to be a people, even now, Lord, a people who, like Jacob, seek not general benevolence, are not asking for a common forbearance that even the reprobate know, but would really and truly seek the application of those benefits that Christ has procured at the cost of his own blood. And may we seek these things, Father, for your own namesake, that the Lord God would be glorified as the world sees that he still fulfills covenant to his own. Bless us, Father, we pray as we part. We ask that your blessing would be known to us, especially especially in these ways that we would become more Christ-like people, a more people, more people who live by faith, more people who are conscientious in all things, more people who prefer the consolation of Zion to the comfort of the world. Be gracious to us, O God, we ask, and pardon us our many sins as we part now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.